The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. We have uh, a lot to cover today, so we're just going to kind of jump on in. If you would, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Uh, If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 33. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page 66. Genesis chapter 39. Just prior to Genesis 39, uh, in Genesis 37, we have the story of Joseph starting. And then in Genesis 38, we have the story of Joseph's brother, Judah. And Judah is a pretty messed up guy. Uh, Judah is a guy, he is enslaved to his own selfishness. He's enslaved to his own sinful desires. He leaves the family of God. He runs away so that he can pursue the sin that he so delights in. He joins with, uh, makes best friends with this guy who is kind of the party animal of the city. He marries a Canaanite woman. He raises very, very wicked children, so wicked that two of the three children of the sons God puts to death. Judah goes on to put his daughter-in-law Tamar in great danger by not giving her his youngest son. Judah's wife dies over the course of chapter 38, and in a way to grieve for it, Judah decides to go and party. And as he's going to party, he goes to also solicit a prostitute. His daughter-in-law Tamar knows that this is coming, and she poses as a prostitute, covers her face. She is found out later, three months later, to be pregnant with child. Judah is angry, and he says, let's burn her. And then he finds out that he's the father. And when he finds out that he is the father, we see this amazing display of repentance. He is struck to the heart. He says, she is more righteous than I. And he confesses his sin and he turns from his sin to the Lord. The reason I share that is Judah's testimony is a very exciting testimony. You know, there are those testimonies of people that come to the Lord that say, you know, I I shot everyone I saw. You know, I did every drug I could find. I slept with everyone I saw. Like, and then I met Jesus and there was this amazing, miraculous transformation. And and there's those very exciting, exciting, extraordinary testimonies that all of us love to hear. And then there are boring testimonies. Testimonies like Joseph. Testimonies where he, did not, where he did not go and sleep around. He did not go and drink everything under the sun. He did not go and smoke anything he could find. Joseph had a boring testimony in many respects. He might say there was never a day he did not know and love and serve the Lord. You know, my hope is that my children would have boring testimonies. Amen, right? I mean, you want your children to have boring testimonies. You don't want them to have the testimony where they came back from drug addiction or where they came back from whatever it might be. God's in control, but we want boring testimonies. I want to have a boring testimony. I don't want to be the pastor who, who went off in moral failure and then came back to Jesus. And I want to have a boring testimony. Joseph has a boring testimony. He knows and loves and follows the Lord. He is held in stark contrast to Judah. Both Judah and Joseph were away from God's people. Judah by choice, Joseph by force. And the way they respond is in two very different ways. And so the question I want to ask this morning is when we are away from the people of God, when we are by ourselves, how do we pursue holiness? 
When, when sin's temptation is so strong, how do we choose righteousness in those times? How do we cultivate holiness when no one is looking? That's what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 39. Before we dig in, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you save people with all backgrounds. People who have had horrific lives and people who have had pretty good lives. God, we pray this morning that you would show us a motivation for holiness that would exceed all of our desire for sin. Help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Before we start reading, let me just remind you of Joseph's story. Joseph was born uh, the second youngest of 12 sons to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. Jacob was Israel's favorite son. This was symbolized by receiving a coat of many colors. Because of his father's favoritism, all of Joseph's brothers hated him. And so one day when Joseph goes to check on his brothers who are, who are shepherding the flock, they see him coming from afar with his special coat on, and they say, let's kill him. Two of the brothers change their minds, and they end up selling Joseph into slavery to some uh, Ishmaelites that are passing by. I'm sorry, to some Canaanites that are passing by. And they purchase him, and they take him down to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, they sell him into the Potiphar's house. And Potiphar is kind of like one of the right-hand men of Pharaoh. And so that's where the story begins today. And we'll start by looking at Joseph's holy service. Genesis 39, verse 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, And over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Remember the heights from which Joseph fell that we just kind of talked about. Joseph was a favored son. Joseph actually had two dreams from God, not one, but two, telling him that he was going to rule over many people, including his own family. He was comfortable. He was in a good situation. He was in his home. He was among God's covenant community, and he is purged out of it. And so if there's anyone who had an excuse to just kind of lay back, to get lazy, to feel sorry for themselves, it would have been Joseph. Life had been pretty unfair to him. But Joseph didn't seem to do that. And we know by how quickly he was promoted in Potiphar's house. Joseph probably didn't play dumb. He didn't play sick. Joseph had to learn the language. He had to learn the trade. He had to somehow acquire the management skills that it would take to be the right-hand man of Potiphar. Joseph must have proven himself to be a hard worker, a man of integrity, a godly man. And because of this, 
he raises up in Potiphar's house and becomes Potiphar's right hand. And he, Potiphar entrusts everything to Joseph except for the food that he ate. In these first six verses, we see a partial fulfillment of a promise that God had made to Joseph's great-granddad, Abraham. Abraham's story starts in Genesis 12, and it reads like this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And then here it is. Listen close. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise to Abraham is actually repeated to him and to his descendants in Genesis 18, 22, and 30. It's a dominant theme of God's covenant with Abraham and his children that they would be a blessing to the nations. And we see that partial fulfillment here with Joseph. We see his holy service before God, even as a slave in Potiphar's house. He's a blessing to the house of Potiphar. Later, we will see he's a blessing to the prison. Even later, we will see as he raises to power and becomes the prime minister of Egypt, he is a blessing not only to Pharaoh, but to all the people in the region. If you trust in Christ, Galatians 3, 7 tells us that you too are a child of Abraham, that you too have been blessed by God in order that you might be a blessing in your family, in your community, but even in your workplace. This past Friday, I was visiting with John Olson's dad in the hospital, and I was reminded of a story that I heard earlier. He's from the UP, and he has a good friend that he led to the Lord, whose name is Elmer, or they also call him Lubby. Elmer was, uh, worked for the Dickinson County Road Commission in Iron Mountain for about 40 years. And as part of his job, when snow came, he, was, he, he had to go out and plow the roads. But Elmer just didn't go out and plow the roads. He did much more than that. He went the extra mile. If Elmer drove past a driveway and he put a bunch of slush in someone's driveway, he would get out and take his shovel and he would shovel out the driveway. When he would slush up the intersections, he would get out and he would shovel the intersections. He would go by the houses of elderly people and be extra careful to make sure that he plowed very gently and very well and got the snow out of the way so that they wouldn't fall and get hurt. Elmer would even get up early Sunday mornings to go and plow the parking lot of two churches in town. You know, I never met Elmer, but my guess is Elmer knew that cleaning streets wasn't just a job. It was a divine calling. He had been blessed by God in order to be a blessing to those that God had put in his path. Elmer blessed the neighborhood Bless the community, and it was a testimony of God's goodness. As a matter of fact, when Elmer retired, there was such an uproar because the people were used to such a great level of service. Elmer knew that plowing streets wasn't just to feed his kids. It was a divine calling from God to bless those who God had put around him. And so my question for you is this, what about you? When you're driving into church, what is going through your head? Uh, is it, oh, I'm so stressed, I'm so overwhelmed? Is it, man, I hate my job? Is it, I sure hope so-and-so doesn't talk to me today? 
You have been blessed by God to be a blessing. We are called to go to our workplace to bless those that are around us. We see that even when we do that, it is a testimony to the Lord. We read in verse 30, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, that Joseph's master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And the question is, could that be said of you? Do people see the Lord Jesus Christ by the way that you bless them in the workplace? If you left, would they be sad because of the way that you've treated them with integrity, with value, with worth, with your dependability? Or would they say good riddance? Colossians 3, 22 through 25 puts it this way. It says, slaves, which we could also interpret for our sake, employees, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Again, your work is not merely something to earn money so that you can play on the weekends. It is a divine calling from God. It is a holy service to God. You have been put in your place of employment And blessed by God that you might be a blessing. And so we see here this holy service that Joseph does. We continue and we see a holy sexuality. Starting midway through verse 6, we read, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now remember, this is kind of contrasting Judah and Joseph, okay? Verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this, is, he is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. Because you are his wife. How then could I do this wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he was into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Sexual sin is one of the most most pervasive, strongest sins there is out there. Ever since the fall, there has been a real temptation towards sexual sin. Maybe you've heard the oldest occupation in the world, right? Sexual sin is a constant temptation for everyone. And when we look at the scripture and we look at Joseph, we may say, well, he's in the Bible. He's super holy. He has, you know, extra godness in him. And so it's really easy for him to walk away from temptation. But that is a bogus thought. Joseph was as susceptible to this temptation as you and I are. I mean, think about how real this temptation would have been for Joseph. There's a very good chance that Potiphar's wife was an attractive woman. I mean, people that are in power usually marry very attractive women. She had lots of money, so she had at her disposal the best beauty supplies. She was probably very well-dressed. She was probably very beautiful. And here was Joseph, a 27-year-old man 
who had natural sexual desires that God had given to him as a gift. And she is here petitioning him to come and sleep with him. And so it was a real temptation for Joseph, but it was also a constant temptation for Joseph. We read in verse 10 that Potiphar's wife came day after day and she spoke to Joseph, but he would not lie with her. She kept nagging him, seducing him, and giving him the opportunity to lie with her. And so we see not only is it a real temptation, it's a constant temptation, but it's also a seemingly justifiable justifiable temptation. You can almost hear the argument from Potiphar's wife, couldn't you? Could you imagine the discussion they had? I could imagine her saying something like this. Listen, Joseph, you are 27 years old. You have these desires given to you by God. You have a sexual appetite that is good and well, but you've been a slave for 10 years. God has not been fair to you. God has made your life hard, and now you have this opportunity. God has given you this opportunity to enjoy the desires that he has given to you. You're not married. You are alone, and you will probably always be single. Let us indulge. Or you might think about how Joseph might justify this. He could say to himself, you know what, Potiphar, that Potiphar, he's too busy to run his house. He's too busy even to take care of his wife. She is a desperate housewife. She needs some TLC. She deserves a man to love her. Do you see how this works? Do you see how easy it is to justify and rationalize her sin and make it seem like it's okay? You know, one thing this story brings to the surface is that sexual sin, sexual temptation is not just for men. It is something in this story that the woman is the aggressor. You know, it's interesting. A few months ago, I was talking to Holly Stranton, the speaker for the women's retreat. And not only is she a national speaker, but she's also a counselor. And I asked her, I said, Holly, what is the number one thing you see women for? What is the number one reason they come into counseling? And to be honest, I thought I would hear low self-esteem or depression or something like that. And without a pause, she said, sexual sin. I said, what? Really? I said, so what you're telling me is the biggest temptation for men is the biggest temptation for women as well? And she said, yep. And I said, God help us all. (laughs) Men and women can relate to Joseph. Sexual sin is a real temptation, and it comes in various forms. It comes in the form of pornography, but it also comes in in the form of romance novels in which women or men are taught to long for someone that is not their spouse. It comes in books like Fifty Shades of Grey or TV shows with very romantic scenes. It comes in attractive and frustrated co-workers and friends. And so it is a very real temptation, maybe more real, more present, more in our face than ever before. And it is so easy to justify it, isn't it? It's so easy to justify, to say, my life is difficult. My spouse doesn't love me like they should. I'm single, and God has given me these desires. Sexual temptation is a real temptation, a constant temptation, and a seemingly justifiable temptation. And so the question I want to ask is, how can we, like Joseph, have a holy sexuality? And there's a couple things here. First off, we can start by calling sin, sin. One way in our culture that we justify sexual perversion is by changing the name of it. 
We take perversion that is condemned in scripture and we call it an alternative lifestyle. That sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? An alternative lifestyle. We take fornication or lust and pornography and we call it experimentation. We take adultery and we call it following your heart. But that's not what Joseph does. Look at verse 9 with me. Joseph says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph does not rename his sin to make it a more comfortable language. Joseph calls it what it is. He says it is sin and it is wicked. You know, it doesn't matter what you call adultery or fornication. A rose by any other name is still a rose, right? Sin is still sin. There was, there's a famous gospel singer named Kirk Franklin, and he is quite possibly the most famous gospel singer of all times. He's probably brought uh, a lot of gospel into mainstream by, by integrating it with some hip-hop. And he's just a, uh, he loves the Lord. Um, he sings to the Lord. And he's a great testimony to many people. A few years ago, probably seven, eight years ago, I can't remember when, he went on the Oprah Winfrey show. And on the Oprah Winfrey show with, with great audacity, which uh, great courage, he shared about his porn addiction. He shared about how since he was eight years old, he was addicted to pornography. He even shared one story of one night when he was so sickened after he was married, he was so sickened by his by his addiction, that he took his magazines and he went to a dumpster and he dumped them all in. And then as he went back home, he tried to fall asleep and he couldn't. And he heard it calling out to him. And so there he was driving back, digging through the dumpster, trying to find those magazines. And as he shared this story, it's interesting. Oprah said this, and I don't know if this is what she believed or she was just playing devil's advocate, but she said this. She go, isn't porn just a rite of passage for men? Isn't it just a part of coming of age? And Kirk looked at her and he said, no, it's slavery. Do you have your mind made up, like Joseph, that sexual perversion is sin? Sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, lusting after someone who's not your spouse is sin. It's wicked. So first, we need to call sin, sin. Secondly, we need to flee from sexual sin. Verse 12 says, She caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. He didn't rationalize with her. He didn't say, well. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 1 Corinthians 6 says the same thing. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of of a prostitute. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul is communicating something that that research has found recently, which is that sexual encounters is something that welds people together spiritually, emotionally, physically, Mentally, psychologically, this is God's gift to super glue husbands and wives together. It is a relational concrete to mend together husbands and wives. And so when we are concreting ourselves, welding ourselves, super gluing ourselves to people that are not our spouse, we're breaking the bond with the one that God gave us sexuality for. 
When we have sex with our spouse, we are not just having a physical exchange. We are committing all of our life to them. And they're committing all of our life, their life to us. Christianity doesn't diminish sex. It heightens it. And it says it is a powerful vehicle used by God to mend two hearts together. Verse 18 in, in that 1 Corinthians passage goes on and says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. This is a powerful passage telling us to flee from sexual immorality by reminding us of who we are in Christ. We are joined to the Lord. We are one spirit with him. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are bought with a price. And so we should glorify God with our body. We should flee. This part of this means fleeing physically. One theologian said that the greatest, uh, the greatest arsenal for uh, running away from sexual sin is a new pair of tennis shoes. Um, this is what Joseph did. He ran away. Maybe you're in your workplace. Maybe you're at home alone. Maybe wherever it is, in the movie theater, bookstore. If you see this sin coming towards you, we're called to flee physically, but we're also called to flee mentally in our heads. Second Timothy 2.22 says this, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who are called on the Lord from a pure heart. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We are to run away from it physically and mentally, and we are to run to Jesus. And so we are to live holy sexually in our lives. And this is not a burden. This is a great joy to a God who loves us and cares for us. So as we continue, we see this amazing uh, declaration of his commitment to God, of Joseph's commitment to God. He repels the Potiphar's wife. And how is he rewarded? Let's look. Verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, And had fled out of the house. She called to the men of her house and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. She's blaming her husband already. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? Here's Joseph, away from family, 27 years old, single. 
He has natural God-given desires. The opportunity presents himself and he chooses to follow God. You would expect God to maybe throw a parade for him (laughs) or do something special. But what happens? He's wrongfully accused and he's thrown in jail. If this troubles you, if this troubles you that God responds in this way, could it be that your motivation for righteousness is completely off? Could it be that your motivation for godliness is not actually to glorify God, but that you might receive comfort, that you might receive gifts, that you might receive a parade from God? Could it be that your goal for righteousness is not to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, but your goal for righteousness is that your life might go easy? You see, for Joseph, this wasn't really, it didn't seem to be at least a big deal for him. I would be prone to depression, anger, bitterness, That's not how Joseph responded. And I'm convinced the reason why he doesn't respond in that way is because he says, whatever happens, whether I am unjustly convicted and thrown in jail or whether I am sitting in Potiphar's house or whether I am with my family, everything I do, no matter what the situation, is for the glory of God. It's not for my own personal gain. It's for God to receive glory. You know, there's an important truth here. Joseph didn't just suffer In the midst of his righteousness, Joseph suffered because of his righteousness. Do you see that? If Joseph would have gone into sin, it would have been their little secret. He could have climbed the corporate ladder even more. But it was because of his righteousness that he was persecuted and thrown in prison. You see, this Joseph is to point us to a greater Joseph. This is the heart of the gospel. There was a greater Joseph to come who never, ever sinned. He was righteous 100% of the time. And yet, because of his righteousness, because of it, he was persecuted. He was in prison. He was wrongfully sentenced to death. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. A crown of thorns was placed on his head and beaten to his brow. He was taken to the cross where he hung on it for you and for me. He is the greater Joseph. He's the Joseph that suffered because of his righteousness. He suffered because he loves you and me. He suffered that you and I might not ever suffer again. That in all of eternity, we will endure perfect delight and never again have to deal with suffering. You know, Joseph did everything right, and yet life blew up for him. And the question for you is this. When you have resisted temptation, when life still goes bad, where do you go? Do you plunge into despair? Do you plunge into sin and say, ah, it's not worth it anyways. He's not doing anything for me. Or do you respond like Joseph? Do you respond like Christ in obedience to walk faithfully with the Lord? Let's continue with the passage. Verse 21. This is while Joseph is wrongfully put in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Now, I'm just thinking of this like, you know, if, if, if you're wrongfully put in prison and the warden tosses you the keys, you might be a trustworthy person. <laughs> So Joseph was put in charge because the Lord was with him. 
And whatever he did, the Lord made it successful. You know, as we look at this story, we maybe know the end of Joseph's story. We have an advantage that Joseph doesn't. We know the end of Joseph's story. We know that he had to go to this royal prison in order to meet some royal officials who would introduce him to the pharaoh and that he would meet the pharaoh so that he could become the prince of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt. And he became the prime minister of Egypt so that he could uh, interpret revelation from God to save up food for seven years and to dispense it for seven years, saving hundreds and thousands of people, not to mention his own family and the line of Judah, which is the line of Christ. We can see all those things because we have read the end of the story. Now you might be looking at this and saying, that's great for Joseph. He's going through suffering, but he has this great end in mind. What about me? I'm going through suffering. I'm going through trials. But I don't see God doing anything with it. Don't forget, your story is not done. God is still writing your story. And it's true, you may or may not know why God has brought suffering into your life. But we have this promise from Genesis 8, I'm sorry, from Romans 8.28, that God makes to those who love him. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, good, bad, ugly, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it does not say suffering is good. It doesn't say that the things are good, but that God will use it for good in his great plan of redemption. So in the midst of suffering, we must remain faithful knowing God will use it for good in accordance to his plan. And so we have seen Joseph's holy service, working for God and not for men, his holy sexuality, fleeing sexual immorality, and even his holy suffering, living for Christ in the midst of an unjust imprisonment. It's funny because at the end of Genesis 39, it ends with Joseph in prison. But the great irony is that in all of Egypt, there was not a more free man. Joseph was more free than anyone else in all of Egypt, assuming that no one else knew the Lord God. I mean, when you look at this life, you see the freedom in his life. Joseph was free from useless, godless work. He was free from unholy, guilt-laden sexuality. He was free from bitterness and anger and depression in the midst of his suffering. And I don't know about you, but I want to be free like Joseph. I want more freedom in my heart, in my life. I want to be free in those areas. And so I want to end with this question. What is the secret to Joseph's success? What is the secret to Joseph's success? Not, not that he made a lot of money and all that, but what's the secret to his success in pursuing godliness? Because I need that. I need to know it. And there are two things that we'll see here. The first is this, and uh, it's throughout Genesis 39, and to be honest, it's been painful trying to hide it. <laughs> during the sermon, but look with me if you would. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. The keeper of the prison, sorry, verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do you see the first part 
of the secret to Joseph's success. The God of the universe was with him. Even when he seemed silent, even when Joseph was sold off into slavery, even when Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. Joseph could be faithful because God had been faithful. God had been faithful to remain with his servant no matter what the circumstance. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that for all believers, God says to us, I, ne- I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you are at work, when you are in the bedroom, when you are unjustly suffering, the glorious truth remains, this glorious truth remains that God is with you and he will never, ever leave you. Now, for the second part, you may say that's very well and good. I know that God is with me. I trust in Christ, but I am still enslaved to sin in my life. There's a second part of this. And when you put the two items together, it is combustible. And we see this element in a single verse here, but really we see it displayed in the whole passage. Look at verse 9, the the last part of it. Joseph's response to the advances of Potiphar's wife. He says this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What Joseph is showing for us is the supreme passion of his heart. He is showing an overarching love for God. Yes, God is with Joseph, but God is also Joseph's supreme love in life. And Joseph gives God first place, and that orders everything else in his life. You know, we often think that to defeat sin in our life, to have a boring testimony like we want, that we need to have just this amazing self-control. And we need to suppress the desires of the flesh. And we need to suppress the needs of the heart, the desires of the heart. But the reality is that to gain victory, we don't have to suppress the desires of the heart. We just have to rearrange them. We have to put the Lord as our chief desire, and that will arrange every other desire in our heart. Let me end with this story. When I was in college and after college, I, was, I had this TV show that I loved. I'm not going to say what it is, but it was a cartoon. And the cartoon was kind of inappropriate, and I knew it, but I thought, you know, I'm a doll. It's funny. It's okay. I'll watch it. And so even Trish, when we got married, she'd say, why do you watch that show? That's such a bad show. But it's so funny. But then we had our first child, Corbin. And my life was recentered, to say the least. The first year of his life, um, I actually stayed home and I watched him and then took night classes to finish seminary. Trisha taught so that we could pay the bills. And he was ever-present. I mean, he was always there. He would nap in the living room. I'd hold him in the living room. He'd play in the living room. And so when that cartoon would come on, when I'd be flipping through the channel, he'd see that cartoon, he'd be like, oh, a cartoon. And I'd say, no, 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 no. Let's keep going. And the reason why my, why my priorities had changed was because I had a new passion in my life, a passion that was greater than this silly TV show. You know, if you're just trying to suppress wicked desires, you will fail. The secret to Joseph's success in pursuing godliness at work, godliness in the bedroom, godliness in suffering, is the secret to your success and to my success. And that realizing that we are never, ever, ever, ever alone, but that God of the universe is with us. 
And by cherishing that God above all else, making him our supreme passion, that everything else would become minimal in comparison. Everything else will be controlled by that one overarching, overmastering, supreme love of your heart. Let's pray. God, we pray indeed that you would become our great passion, that you would become our great desire, that you would crowd out the sinful desires of our, of our heart, that we might be consumed by you, and that we might live godly lives for your glory, God. Help us to this end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.